from Headstuff Studios in Dublin, welcome to Mother Folklore, a podcast about words, Irish, Irish words, and words from Ireland. I'm Dara O'Shea. I'm Geraldine McAvoy. I'm Clodagh McGinley. And you're all very welcome to today's episode. It all started back in 2008 with an alleged assault with a broken whiskey bottle, a legal case which brought the importance of the Irish language right to the fore in the Irish legal system. O'Makine versus Ireland. Garagine. What is this case? Um, I'm so glad we're doing this episode because this case is fascinating. Um, I mentioned it in one of our episodes before and uh, Derek's been absolutely nagging me since. No, I've just been delighted <laughs> to do this. <laughs> um, so Amokin versus Ireland is a case, like you said, it was an assault case. Um, back in 2008, an individual from Mr. Amokin, from, I think he's from Ross Moch, um, yeah. was accused of two counts of assault. Um, it was assault causing harm. I don't think it was grave harm, but it was still um, a punishable by um, prison sentence offence. So it was serious enough. And when you are accused of such a crime and you go to trial, you are entitled to jury. Um, so juries are pretty common in criminal cases in Ireland. There are some exceptions. But for like your regular sort of run in the mill criminal case, we have a jury. And Mr. Mulheen, his first language was Irish. Um, he was you know, brought up completely in an Irish speaking community and spoke Irish for the most of his life and the assault took place in the Goyalsk area. Um, so when Mr. Mohim went to the court, he sought to have his uh, case tried in Irish, which is his constitutional right. Um, and not only that, but he also sought to have a jury, to be tried by a jury of his peers who spoke Irish. And that's the key point here. This is why this court case ended up in the Supreme Court. Um, he uh, kind of went to the state seeking his right to be heard in his own language by a jury. And this is what created this um, kind of legal uncertainty because for anyone who's ever done jury service, um, the way it's selected, it's kind of a random selection of people who are eligible to be uh, jurors um, and who um, are in your kind of like... I think it's electoral area or something, but it's it's generally people from your area and that's how we select juries. Um, there are various reasons for exemptions for juries, but Mr. Mohin wanted to be tried by a jury of Irish speakers um, and he brought this question to the Supreme Court and this was what what was at issue. And it was, um, it went through a number of courts, obviously before it got to the Supreme Court mm-hmm. and it had been turned down on a number of grounds. First of all, as was it before we got to the Supreme Court and the, the point in which it was in the High Court, it was dismissed, was was the issue of testing the competency for Irish, am I right? Yeah, so there was an issue that if you were to test for the competency of Irish, it would interfere with the randomness of the selection of um, juries. So juries need to be random. Uh, they need to be, uh, the, the test we have is a fair cross-section of the community. And that was in, again, I'm going to bring her up, my old gal, Mary Robinson. She uh, was the barrister in charge of a case to Borka versus the Attorney General, which was the case that um, allowed for kind of a larger, on a larger scale, allowed women to be present on juries because at the time it was only landowners and by virtue of being married, your your husband owned the land. So uh, women couldn't be on juries. When was that? 1982. So very uh, uh, recently. Far too recently. Yeah. For <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm, I remember 1982. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I think the arguments uh, there was there's actually it's, that's in itself a, quite an interesting case because there was an awful lot of arguments made that women would be horrified by the things that they saw on juries. So like they didn't need to be on juries; they needed to protect them. God loved them. Mm-hmm. Um, so Mrs. De Borca, who was equally badass, um, she herself and another woman whose name escapes me, um, they kind of deliberately went about causing committing a crime so that they could take this case, so they could be have jurors. Um, and they were represented by Mary Robinson. So it was in that case that it was found that the jury needs to be a fair cross-section of the community. And um, so the, the in the High Court, it was argued that this uh, testing for the competency of an Irish language speaker would interfere with this idea of a fair cross-section of the community. So you would only get a select few people and that's not representative of a fair cross-section. Okay. And I suppose that's uh, it's an interesting thing. But then the idea as well that the that a person's the level of a person's Irish would have to be ascertained because this isn't something that's done with English. Exactly, and that was the argument made in uh, the Supreme Court's judgment. The the only dissent from Justice Hardiman, um, and he said that you know it, we don't ass- assess for people's English. Um, so you know why 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 should there be nobody when they apply to be or when they you know, register to vote, which is how you become a registered to be on a jury, I think. Yes. I'm pretty sure that's it, yeah. Um, you know, nobody checks whether you're competent in English, but nevertheless, if you rock up to the Supreme Court, or to, no, it wouldn't be the Supreme Court, if you rock up to, you know, whatever court it is, um, not able to speak English, you know, there's an expectation that you would be. I don't know, maybe they do provide interpreters, but I'm I'm pretty sure. I know for recently enough, it was actually only this year or late last year, that the first ever deaf person was on a jury and, and that person had a, an ISL interpreter. But usually, you know, the the juries are consistent of, of entirely English speakers and nobody checks their competency. Um, and yet uh, the level of, of understanding involved in a court case, is funny anyone's ever been to court, like the level of English they use, the words they use can be mm-hmm. extremely complicated if you're even for, you know, somebody with a legal background. It's, you know, it's a, it's a different style of speaking. So it's complicated That's, nevertheless. For sure. And if you're, on, if you're in a court case when there's, this, uh, when there's a barrister or a solicitor using legal terms and they might have a medical expert using medical terms yeah. or a kind of a psychiatric um, evaluation which, which includes technical terms when, and so, some of these may even may even overlap or have a very specific meaning within their profession which is mm-hmm. different from the normal meaning. That mm-hmm. can be, it can be highly confusing. In yeah, exactly, exactly. And that was at issue here, um, which Justice Hardiman kind of said didn't really hold up because, um, again, he was overruled. But um, he kind of said that, you know, we don't test this for, for for English, but, you know, we there's the expectation that there would be a competency test and how, what is your level um, necessary? Um, and I actually, I did some research before today. Okay. Which is <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm actually in the process of, of well, I'm do, in the process of doing a PhD, but on the side, I'm in the process of writing a paper on uh, a, on a Puerto Rican case, um, which is from the 70s, where uh, a man was, was tried for a crime in Puerto Rico. And Puerto Rico has a majority Spanish speaking community. Nevertheless, the courts are under the US jurisdiction and so courts take place in English. So your jury will be entirely English speaking on the island of Puerto Rico. And that makes up about 12%. At the time, it made up 12% of the Puerto Rican population. And of that 12%, 90% of that 12% came from like a much higher uh, class. Um, so they would have been yes. wealthier people. So that was, you know, arguably not a fair cross-section of the community, but still under the the that particular ruling, it was still considered a, cross-section, a fair cross-section of the community, just a different community. So there is two ways of interpreting that. You can say that Mr. Omohin has... I would argue, again, being the seasoned legal uh, arguer that I am, uh, that Mr. Mocking would have the right to be tried by a fair cross-section 
section of his community, which would be Irish speakers, because he yes. has this double right, um, not only to be heard in his first language, which you have a, a human right to be heard in your own language. And then you have a double right because there is a constitutional right to speak Irish of a greater level than there is to speak English. So um, I would argue that Mr. Mocking, again, I, I would side with uh, Justice Hardiman, but then again, I'm not on the Supreme Court. So <laughs> uh, my not opinion yet. is not yet. <laughs> <laughs> and again, the, the person who was assaulted in this case, or the person who was... Um I say was assaulted or was deemed or was, who was it? Um, so I actually don't know about that particular. Okay, side the, of it. the other party to this case. Yeah. Okay. The other the other party to this case was <laughs> the also, victim in the in the victim the, yeah. of the assault was also an Irish speaker. Yeah, Would yeah. they um, have any rights in the situation uh, to make a determination? Oh. No, because it's a criminal case. So the victim in that scenario isn't actually taking the case. It's the state on behalf of the victim. So mm. the victim is just evidence. Um, so their language. Unless they were, I mean, this person may have been giving evidence um, in Irish. I don't know. And they would have then if there's a jury who don't speak English, they are through an interpreter. But similarly, if that person was Polish, it wouldn't ask. As a victim, you don't really have very many rights. It's it's the accused person who has the, the rights, um, which is problematic in some areas. But that's, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Say mm-hmm. the least. <laughs> mm-hmm. And this obviously raises all sorts of issues because like words have power and never more so than the words in the court case mm-hmm. and the words in a law. Yeah. And I know this is one of the things that, uh, that Judge Hardiman, um, Justice Hardiman pointed out in his in his ruling was that um, the actual, um, the while Irish was an official language of the state, the, the, it, was a, it was a ridiculous situation for, for a, a criminal case not to be pursued in one of the official languages when if that was requested. Exactly. Um, this Hardyman's dissent, and he was famous for his dissents, um, as well as his judgments. He's a, a great orator and and uh, judgment writer. But it's full of, and the technical term is judicial burns. Like they're so good. <laughs> um, and he said, I have a, a quote from it that I particularly like. He said that Ireland has always been reluctant to ha- um, behave as if it were in law and in practice, as well as in the constitution a bilingual state, but that does not take from the fact that Ireland is, by its constitution, a bilingual state. The judges, of course, are bound to uphold the constitution. Oh, the burns! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, he kind of points out the, the fallacy of the fact that there was all of this sort of just, oh, we can't have this, we can't, oh, that would be too difficult. But that's ignoring the fact that our constitution was written to say that we have a bilingual state and the fact that you are, you know, as a state, we are making it more difficult. That's on us. And he, you know, as as always in these cases, there's comparisons made to Canada where similarly they're a bilingual state and they don't kind of knot themselves in uh, or wrap themselves in knots in order to say it's too difficult because they recognise the bilingual rights of, of French Canadian speakers. Um and, you know, he recognised this and uh, I think it's, you know, there's many examples of, of Canadian court cases where, um, you know, the, the bilingual right was given. You, you had a right to have all of the legislation in, in Manitoba um, translated and it hadn't been translated for something like 100 years. And the judges were like, well, you should have been translating it. So get to translating. And that doesn't happen here. So we have a different attitude. And, and Hardiman uh, pointed that out. Um, and I think uh, quite well. So mm-hmm. it's a really good judgment. And the fact that it's supposed constitutional as well. I mean, if something is, is if it's kind of Irish, the Irish language for a lot of um, state activities is almost like a canary in a, in a mine in that if the Irish language part isn't working, there's often other parts that aren't working very well either. <laughs> uh, it's often a very good test. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, 
with the exception perhaps of of course interpreters and stuff I do think that our Irish interpreters are I, I believe they're quite good but the other interpreters not so good <laughs> <laughs> with the exception of some excellent interpreters but I think overall our interpretation system is there's a lot to be desired left with that that's um, for sure yeah, yeah Claude have you ever been called for jury duty no I have not actually I've only been voting age for oh god uh, yeah five years five years so not yet my okay. dad has recently but I think oh. he got out of it somehow yeah did you so. see <laughs> Did you see Very the letter? Much. Did you see? No, I didn't. The list actually. of the list of professions that get an automatic exemption was kind of a raised eyebrow for me, and I can understand that's a, a some doctors might have to be called at very quick notice. Yeah. If you if you're in, in if you're an um, obstetrician or gynecologist, yes, you might have a patient who might go into labour, and and obviously there's other people who might might need to be summoned at a moment's notice. Then sea captains, I suppose. <laughs> I'm not I'm not deeply acquainted with the work of a sea captain, but I, I reckon that. Yeah, sometimes they um they often have to be be places. Yeah, and then there's the 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 amount of professions that get an almost automatic exemption, particularly when you consider that um we, the, the the amount of grounds for exclusion, and when you consider the amount of professions, and an, an awful lot of what almost seems like general office work that just happens to maybe be for an agency of the state mm. is. It is an issue, particularly when you the actual amount of of peers who who will be selected from, and then there could be other issues like geographical points. A person may have mm. moved house and things. So the um the actual there's there's larger issues with jury selection. Yeah, I remember my mom got out of jury ser- service. Like it was the I mean I know you're not automatically I think and um, we don't have the war deer that we, they have in America, but she was selected anyway, and she went with a wedding invitation for like that weekend or something. It wasn't even the same day, but it was that weekend. And to the court, and they were like, yeah, that's fine, you don't have to come. <laughs> she, like, she wasn't even going to the wedding, but she just had the invitation. She was like, oh, I don't want to do this. Oh. And it was really easy to get out of it. But I inherently, I, I don't necessarily think that juries are a good thing. I mean, there's other countries that function pretty well. Justice is served in the absence of juries. Mm-hmm. I don't know anyone who likes doing jury service who's, I mean, there's this opinion that jury duty is going to be like great crack. Like, yeah, I think that people think that you get sent to a nice hotel, and <laughs> and I remember I've, I've like I've heard I've heard one or more, two more urban myths about um about couples meeting in jury duty. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Get getting sequestered when they when they have a look around at the at the other eleven, they decide if they're going <laughs> to say guilty or not guilty. It's later for as long as possible, but it's. Yeah, I'm sure it's a. Yeah. It's not. It's not the Four Seasons or the or the no. Shelburne. That's for sure. But it's even. I mean, if you've ever sat in on a trial, oh my God, they're so boring. <laughs> like they are in. Like there's no. There, there's never a moment where somebody's like, you can't handle the truth on the. And people mm. are expecting that. And I think that's maybe why they're even more bored by it. But like, course, it's really boring. And having to sit there and pay attention to, in some cases, really technical information. And then make a decision on it. I do think that movie 12 Angry Men is, I mean, the amount of stuff that goes on in that jury room that is unethical. Like juries are not supposed to be going out and trying to buy their own knife. Like yes. that shouldn't be happening. Don't do that. But like that's what goes on. And, and I know judges say things like, oh, don't don't read about this case on the Internet. Please. <laughs> like, yeah. Of course they're going to read about it. And like, how do you stop that? How do you police that? So I don't think there's necessarily, I know during the, that was it one of the bankers trials it was actually really hard to find 12 people who had no feelings about these bankers like yeah. like it's really difficult to find people who are completely objective and i think you know we in in civil trials so if i sued you for like pushing me down the stairs we don't have a jury yeah. you know um 
it's only in criminal cases and, and def- uh, some criminal cases and defamation, d- d- defamation cases, um, defamation, <laughs> uh, defamation <laughs> cases that you have a, a jury. Um, and I do, there has been a lot of issues with jury giving like really large compensation that is like, mm. like too large. Um, and then having it having to be appealed and then reduced in other courts. So it, I think it does. I do think if somebody more learned, if there was like a in other countries, I know they do like kind of like legal expert juries. And I, I do mm. think that perhaps is a better idea. I know that might be a controversial opinion. And some people think that it's like the only way to maintain justice. But I don't know about that. Mm. <laughs> you can't be on a jury twice, can you? Once you do it once, you're not allowed to do it again. You, or is that true? There's certain trials, if the tri- if, a, if a murder trials or a rape trials particularly uh, gruesome, often a judge will give them people a lifetime um, mm. exemption from it. But it's not. Um, it's not typically what they do is they say you don't have to do jury for a jury duty for a couple of years. Mm. But you could be called like depending how it goes. If it's like random sampling, yeah. then yeah. you could and be called. And, and you can just say yeah, that a, a judge gave me a letter saying I was doing a very bad trial. Like I um, I a friend of mine was was uh, was told that he didn't have to do jury duty ever again after a particular case. Oh, yeah. But does the cross action not get less and less impartial each time? If it's mm. if you do have the same people going up multiple times, then. Ireland is so small to begin with that like like I noticed turnover population and everything yeah. turnover of electorate but like surely that's another issue as well that like this, you know this is a thing and it when a colleague of mine was told he had to do jury duty um a friend he got advice from a colleague say wear a fauna and they'll think you're a lunatic they'll never pick you. <laughs> Iconic. Wow. <laughs> wear, wear a fauna and put an Irish Times under your arm and they will say don't go near that fella. Um, it's, it's really, I, I think, yeah, I guess they're probably, yeah, that's a good idea to get out of it. <laughs> um, if you demand an Irish language interpreter, and yes, they'll if, be like, nah. <laughs> in the case of O'Mockin, it may have got you more likely to get picked. Um, but, funny that actually, because I know in the United States that if you're hearing a trial where this is so bizarre, like, the, um, if you're, so if I'm, you know, a Spanish speaker and I'm being tried for a crime and then I'm going to be giving testimony and a lot of the witnesses will be giving testimony in Spanish. There will be an interpreter because the courts have to take place in English. Yeah. If you're a bilingual Spanish English speaker on that jury, you're actually exempt because you're not allowed to be on that jury because you're getting information that the other jury isn't, not via the interpreter. So you're getting the original text and then the other juries aren't. So you're actually not allowed. So if you're bilingual, I think in that scenario, it would probably be the same. Well, I don't know, but I think that that's a, a valid argument that the the bilingual person, the Irish speaker in that case, mm. is getting way more information. So you're getting first-hand information that, you know, the other jurors aren't. They're getting it through an interpreter, delayed. And the interpreter's interpretation, no matter how good that interpretation is, again, from the case, um, Hardyman cites uh, Shulman, um, which is a really great article. Unfortunately, it's not available in open source. But where he says... Uh, perfect interpretations don't exist. So if you're a bilingual person who speaks both Irish and English, you're getting all of the information immediately, whereas the other jurors aren't. So I think it would actually give an unfair advantage to that one juror who's saying, you know, in deliberations, they're saying, well, he said this and this. And the other jurors are saying, well, what are you talking about? We never heard that. And then that juror is is offering his own interpretation or her own interpretation. So I think it would possibly work against you in that case. Extraordinary. Hey, I'm Alan McGuire. And I'm Jean Sutton. And we're bringing back Roast Chestnuts for Season 2, starting November 2nd on the Headstuff Podcast Network. So if you like hearing deep analysis of made-for-TV movies from Hallmark or Lifetime, we're the podcast you need to listen to this year. Yeah. There's a lot of Vancouver. A lot of Vancouver. If you've been to Vancouver, this is the podcast for you. See you soon. Bye.
Are there other um, are there other um, court cases um, where, where the issue of the Irish language has um, in say civil or court criminal cases have come to light? Were there other precedents cited oh, in yeah, this? Yeah, the loads. <laughs> <laughs> um, Obiolan versus Fahi, Ofadula versus McLean. I think it is. That's from 1934, which is pre. Um, our constitution, which is pre the Article 8. And in that uh, uh, judgment from 1934, uh, Justice Kenny said, Chief Justice Kenny, Kennedy, sorry, beg your pardon, said that um, he, he set this precedent that there was like, not only was there, uh, you know, this uh, was Irish, uh, an official language, but it was also national language. So there was kind of a twofold right there. So it's way back even before um, the 37 constitution that we have this precedent. And it's still, that case is still, it's not been overturned, and again, that was highlighted by by Hardyman in that case, um, and he he relied heavily on that. But there's yeah, a bunch of cases, um, uh, f- uh, yeah, Obiolan versus Fahi is a big one, and um, the others escape me right now. But again, the the precedent has gone through in in that case. Um, if anyone's interested reading it, it is really <laughs> fascinating, um, uh, particularly as I said, the dissent, but the 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 majority judgment uh, judgments there's four, and then uh, one in agreement. Um, they're also worth reading as well. So I think it's it's a really interesting scenario um, with with juries, and I I think that the issue actually in that case was they did talk about how there would be a, a like a jury pool of Irish speakers in. The Gaeltacht only. So that would mean that if you went to court in Dublin, it, again, it wasn't found to be allowable, but it was found that, it, like, say, for example, if I went to court in Dublin and I tried to speak Irish, I would be less entitled because that person was from a Gaeltacht. But this idea of a Gaeltacht is somewhat, mm. I think it's a little bit, not outdated, but there's so many Irish speakers in Dublin yeah. now. And this is the, this is the thing that the idea of having these um, these Gaeltacht designated Gaeltacht areas as being the, the places for Irish speakers and then resourcing them mm-hmm. as, as poorly as they've been done. Yeah. Uh, hasn't, like, it, it, it isn't necessarily representative of how Irish is spoken in 2018 exactly. or how Irish is used in 2018. And the idea that, that a person like that would might also be more likely to be picked pick for jury duty than a person yeah. who isn't, particularly than, say, a sea captain. <laughs> or, exactly, yeah. And religious orders. Are they exempt as well? I, I, yeah, I can I say that the idea is that a priest might have to give last rites at a moment's oh, notice, but a nun is also... Um, Except she's going to pray or something. I don't know. Well, <laughs> nuns do. <laughs> it's uh, it's well. This is the thing. I was when I was looking at the list. I was like, there was three or four different designations of of the right. kinds of religious orders. So this can absolutely be absolutely no ambiguity. So with this whole scenario of interpreters, we were talking a little bit about it before the show. That there are very varying levels of interpretation within courtrooms, and that it is a problem in and of itself. What was Hardyman's take on? interpreters and interpretation in courts. Yeah, so he was kind of of the argument that, again, it was from this Shulman article, um, which is in the Vanderbilt Law Review, I think, and he, he quotes the kind of bit from it. But effectively, they were saying that an interpretation is just that, an interpretation. So it's my interpretation of what you said, because there, uh, in a lot of languages, you, you can't like take one thing and like put it into a search engine and get the exact same thing out. You know, that's not possible. So it's the interpretation. And particularly when it comes to a jury, a lot of it is the tone, what that person looked like when they were saying, how believable that person was. And a lot of that is not verbal. So that is like body language. But if you're listening to the interpreter and the interpreter, so the person is say, the person given evidence is crying or something, but the interpreter is like stone face monotone. Yeah. Like, you know, as you know, you're a professional, you're doing your job. So the, and, and the syntax and semantics, they're all lost in interpretation. Um, and 
when you're the jury taking on board what is being said in this monotone way, you're not necessarily getting the actual truth of the situation because you're just getting the black and white text. And that doesn't always give you um, the the actual, as I said, truth. Uh, and what I mean by that is like the, the how that person is and how they are speaking, because so much of our communication is body language and you miss out on that and you miss out on, you know, verbal cues when um, the interpretation happens. Mm-hmm. So Hardyman was really aware of this and he was saying that, you know, this man should be entitled to be heard without the delay of an interpreter. And that does raise broader questions about what interpretation is. Mm-hmm. There's a really good argument, again, in the same article that Hardyman didn't cite, about how interpretation can be interpreted as interpreted <laughs> as how it can be seen as hearsay. So hearsay is evidence heard said. So I would say Derek said mm-hmm. and it's not not Derek's words, but I'm reiterating it's an out of court statement said by somebody else. But yeah. OK, interpretation is an out of court, but it's still often, you know, without an oath. So this interpreter has stood up not taken an oath, so they're not subject to perjury. Um and there is wider problems with that. You know, what do you do? How do you do about how do you go about that? Should there be a warning given to the jury by the judge to say, hey, I know that this person can't speak this language or isn't speaking this language, but you nevertheless need to be aware that this interpreter's words are an interpretation. They are the gist, effectively, of what is being said. Um, and we do have wider problems with um, training of interpreters the pay of interpreters is atrocious in Ireland it's really bad pay for interpreters so if you're a professional it's like not sustainable to be an interpreter in this country which really sucks um, because that impacts the like quality of interpretation um, because why would you do it if you're not getting paid well it's an, an and it tends to be freelance rather than being actual employee of the court service Oh, they're not employees of the court service at all. Um, these are all freelance or through an agency and the less said about some agencies the better um, mm. Because I have a lot of feelings about them, <laughs> okay. but um, they're not. Yeah, they're not employed by the court, and there isn't a level of competency. And I understand where the court's coming from because we're inundated with court cases. And then you know, it's it's really hard to get for some languages. It can be really hard to get um, an interpreter for like at, at the drop of a hat. So you need a police interview interpreter mm-hmm. at like four o'clock in the morning for Swahili like can you find somebody who's got a third level degree in Swahili interpretation maybe not so maybe it's easiest to find somebody in the community but that raises all sorts of like ethical issues Um, and I understand that if you start scratching the surface Mm. you sort of open Pandora's box of all these problems and it's sometimes in this country a lot easier to keep Pandora's box nicely closed and not Mm. look at it but um, stay tuned for my research when I publish it (laughs) Speaking of interpretation, I was just reminded there when that one of the final cases of the death penalty in the United Kingdom involved a, uh, the, I think, the shooting of a policeman. That there, there were two criminals and one of whom had a gun, and the policeman asked him to hand it over, and the the other criminal said, "Let him have it." Ah, oh, God! And then obviously there was a shoot, shooting, and then and it was uh, decided whether the other person was was guilty or not. Was he saying give up, give the gun, or was he saying shoot him? Oh my oh. God! Mind blown. <laughs> Insane. It's awful, but it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Really, yeah. really is. Sorry, I'm a lawyer. I'm like, oh, it's so <laughs> fascinating. But yeah, there's a death. It is. Sorry. No, it is really. <laughs> I let go of my morals a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> Can interpretation ever actually be objective, though? Because it's in the mm-hmm. word interpretation. Yeah. Like it's not. So does that ever negate the whole? Like I have no legal background, so like I don't know if I'm using the right words, but like no. negate the whole like judicial process. I mean, we've spoken like so much here about how words can have several meanings and how, yeah. and particularly how sometimes a word in one language doesn't exist in another, yeah. especially in Irish and English. 
And I think uh, I was at a conference, a really good conference recently uh, on interpretation. And I did meet a fan of the show. Hello to Karen McAuliffe. Um, but uh, it was a really interesting look at, you know, what I, I think you're right. I don't think inter- interpretation can never be A equals A. It's A equals B usually. Um, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. And I think but I think. The problem is that people assume that A equals A, that, mm. you know, particularly people in positions of power. So judges um, tend to be monolingual. Um, you know, they're highly educated people, similar to lawyers are highly educated people, but they usually they speak one language. Um, and so they don't understand that that um, the differences in, in these areas. Um, they don't understand what it's like to speak a different language and what it's like to have to rely on interpretation. So I think that's a big problem that um, people don't realise that, yes, that interpretation is not, is, is you know, that it's a good interpretation, but it's still an interpretation. So I think if everybody was more aware of that fact, then you'd have more justice because there have been, you know, really serious cases, particularly in relation to sexual assault. And I'm not going to get into it, but words very much are important in relation to, you know, force and consent and this sort of thing. So th- words really matter in those cases. And when you have a slight disparity in what that person said, um, it can cause, you know, injustice or, or you know, uh, really damaging impacts on victims. Um, so it is really important to be aware that interpretation, as I said, is interpretation you know it's not it's not um uh, an exact science sorry for being an absolute downer and everybody <laughs> no no it's uh, it's important i think it's and it's something that i know uh, before he um before just had, just his argument passed away he did suggest that, that that's more legislation and more kind of support yeah. was needed in this area because that the it exists in the constitution but they that support wasn't there and if it's a maybe um, the agencies of the state don't decide get to decide which rights are important and or not exactly and i think there is sort of an assumption that and maybe it's an underlying assumption that Mr. Malkin could speak English. So, yes. Mm. What are you at like? But that's <laughs> not the point. <laughs> and then again, and that the, there's no. I guess just, we've said that, that there's no test for English either. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So, but so. for some mm. reason, there seems to be. Oh, but we couldn't possibly do that. Like, yeah, you fucking good. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's a, it'll be interesting to see kind of if there's another case like this. I mean, it was a fairly definitive judgment, but no law is set in stone. Um, not we're not like the UK, so we do have the ability to to shift and to develop our opinions. So I do think that maybe in 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 years to come, hopefully there'll be a a shift in the way we view these things. Um, if that is to say that juries aren't deemed completely futile exercises, which I think might not be a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. So um, before we finish up for this week, I just want to say that um, we had to have three copies of my new book, Crack Baby, to give away. Three signed copies, should I add. We are looking for listeners of the podcast to tweet with the hashtag Crack Baby and their favourite Irish word they've learned from this show. So you can go on Twitter, tweet the Irish word you've learned from this podcast with the word Crack Baby in the episode you've heard it in. And you can be in line for inclusion in that draw. So until the next time, thank you very much, Gardine and Claude, for joining me today. Thank you. It's a slant from me. A slant from me. And a slant from me. Catch you next time. Thank you very, very much for listening to this episode of Mother Folklore. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can contact us at motherfolklore at headstuff.org. The podcast is out every Friday. Um, Headstuff do loads of different podcasts that you should definitely listen to. One such podcast will be Taranoia. Definitely give it a listen. 
and thank you to Brian for producing the show and thank you to Kirsten for the artwork. Slongapol. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Oh yes, we won't forget the outro. We, we, we'll, 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 we